Boy, talk about a red wedding. There's a lot going on in that wedding from the first set of invitations to the last and to the one who tried to show up without the free wedding attire. It's getting serious, and these parables we've been moving through the last few Sundays are getting serious because Jesus is sharing them in the temple in Jerusalem and over the course of his last week before his crucifixion. And so if it feels kind of foreboding, that's the point. And Jesus is often with his parables talking uh, to people who won't hear him straight. So he speaks in parables, partly so they don't understand. He's speaking about Israel and the new thing he's doing through his life, death, and resurrection to come. But we'll get into that. Today we're talking about vision, both in the service and then following in our crew meetings uh, after the service. And these selected readings for this Sunday just fit perfectly for a discussion of vision, for what God's vision for Bethesda Lutheran Church might be, and for how the Bible's story captures this vision of hope and mercy for God's creation. So we're going to look at three visions from our readings today, but before that, we have to stop and recognize that it's holy terror in the holy land this week. That the word of God long ago through one of the Proverbs said, where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the old King James Version. Where there is no vision or revelation, the people are without restraint. And right now in our news, even as we're praying for the vision of our congregation, in the news we're seeing a total lack of vision for peace and a way forward, and a way out of a mess that is just a new chapter of the same endless story of violence in God's holy land, where the cousin faiths of Jews and Christians and Muslims are in harm's way and oftentimes harming others. Is there a vision for peace in the Middle East? Is there a new vision? Is there the leadership necessary to carry out some vision, some resolution? Or do we need an end times vision? I mean, I've seen it a lot on, online this week and in just conversations with folks as stuff happens on the other side of the world and sometimes our first response is, are we in the end times? Is this the beginning? Is Jesus coming back soon? And what's the, what's the scenario? I haven't read the Left Behind series since the 90s and I think Pastor Tom told me that that series is junk and I can't remember the details. But nevertheless, as soon as something happens in the Middle East, People thousands of miles away in our country say, are we going to be spectators for the end times? Or are we going to be whisked away in a rapture and, and get out just in time? Or are we going to be a part of these end times? And all of a sudden, Christians kind of trot out their various scenarios as they try to decode the scriptures and move around and build a map or build a scenario. I'm not going to do that for us this morning. And I think it's a little tone deaf to jump right into well, when this happened, that's because of this, and here's the prophecy that's being, like, I think it's tone deaf. I think what we need to do is grieve for all the people in the Middle East. We need to pray for the innocent victims, and we need to pray for those perpetrators and decision makers who can only fight fire with fire, as far as they can tell. But the scriptures don't leave us without vision. The scripture doesn't leave us without God's intentions for the creation from his holy land and to the ends of the earth, even to Americans watching TV, uh, TV news from the safety of our living rooms. 
The first vision from the prophet Isaiah is a mountaintop vision. Israel is in exile in Babylon. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Israel's in exile, and they're wondering if this is just it now. Are God's holy people forever removed from the holy land of promise? And the prophet Isaiah is telling them what God has in mind for them in the end. But it's a much bigger vision than Israel expected. That mountain that Paul read for us today, it's a mountain where God is preparing a feast not just for his people, but for all peoples. It's where God destroys the shroud cast over all peoples, swallowing up death forever, serving well-aged wines and, and meat rich in marrow, where God wipes away the tears from all faces and takes away the disgrace of his people where God does for the world what Israel has long waited for and what the world has been waiting in one way or another, perhaps not knowing that God would do so. The end of the vision that we heard today says, this is our God, we have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And I think right now in these days of violence, We're waiting. We're waiting. And for some of us, what's going on in our life right now is so challenging that we can't help but have tunnel vision because we're afraid of what the doctor's going to say this week or we're concerned if the surgery will go well or we're between jobs and we're not quite sure where our feet will land or we have a relationship that's broken and hurting and we don't have a vision for its reconciliation. It's okay to have that kind of a tunnel vision and for the news to just be too much. God would have invented the internet a long time ago if you needed to know everything that's happening all the time, instantly. (laughs) But I do think that these things work hand in hand. As God gives a vision for all a creation, coming to the same table, feasting on what God provides as God wipes away the tears of the feasters, he also provides this vision through David's Psalm 23 for the valley low, that the Lord is our shepherd, and that for David, he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That mountain of the Lord is a long way off, and it's too dark to see it, but he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death unafraid because God is with him, and this same shepherd is preparing a feast, not after the enemies have been removed, but in the presence of enemies. And for David, some of the enemies had their feet under the same table as he. Some of King David's enemies were one of his own sons who turned against him. The shepherd is with us in the dark valley. If we don't have the vision to worry about or, or, or really take in all that's happening in our world, the Lord knows he's got to feed you too. He's got to bring you to his gifts. He's got to lead you to some still waters so that you can be renewed and be part of the peace to come. But when we read Psalm 23 in the valley or when we hear the Isaiah prophecy about the mountain, we have to say that God doesn't rapture his people away from trouble, but remains with us in trial and in tribulation. 
I'll let him tell his own story sometime when, there's a, 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 when we're sharing faith stories, but there was a couple stories shared in Bible study this week about a time when someone's life was in the balance. They were falling into danger, and they had a vision of Jesus falling with them. And this person realized, he's always with me. If I'm fallen, Jesus is falling with me. This is what the cross means, friends. The Lord is my shepherd. He's feeding me at the table in the presence of my enemies, just as Jesus fed Judas before dismissing him to go betray him. Jesus has a party vision that can capture all of us, whether we look at the news and say, it's got to be the mountain of Isaiah. There's no hope for any of this to get figured out by the people in charge or the rest of us watching on TV. And there's others of us who are in the valley depths, and it's all we can do to just hang on for dear life in our own circumstances. And Jesus now tells a story of a party, that God's vision for his creation, and for you, and for our neighborhood, is a party. He talks about a wedding feast, a king who throws a party for his son, i.e., the father throwing a party for Jesus Christ and his wedding with the church. But this is like no other party a king would throw, then or now. This is an open invitation. And as invitations are rejected or as the RSVPs are sent in denied, he just keeps inviting more. He has room and he desires for everyone in the kingdom to party, to be at the table. And he won't stop until everyone has been invited. And yeah, it takes three waves of invitations and it takes his, his servants going to the highways and byways and main streets before they fill up this feast. But this is a party where the king wants everyone to be there. And you can imagine if the elites had other plans, they were busy, they had some preoccupations of their own, if they didn't have time for the wedding, well, then God invites the highways and the byways, folks. He invites people off the streets. Lo and behold, I mean, what's one of the hardest things to know when you're trying to figure out if you should go to try a new church out? It's like, well, what is it like? I mean, fortunately, now you can go on YouTube and at least get a sneak peek, like, what is, this, what is this church about, or what is it like? But it's interesting. I mean, I talked to people, I just, a couple of weeks ago, talked to a family from the preschool, and it's like, can you just come to church, like, on Sunday, you just come? It's like, yeah. And do you have to, like, wear anything? Like, no, you just come. This wedding feast here has a dress code, not so that people can not fit in, but so that everyone can fit in, so that they know they're there, not because they're Lutheran or because they've been here a while or because they know when to stand up and sit down in church. They have a place here because Jesus has dressed us in his righteousness in baptism and fed us at the table in the presence of our enemies and in the joy of his abundance. But the problem is a lot of people don't want to go to this kind of a party. A lot of people have other ideas about what, how God should operate or how God should throw a party. The son's wedding feast invites everybody, but it's not going to coddle party poopers. And it doesn't pause the feast for prior commitments to get fulfilled. And it doesn't accept anybody dressed in their own success. 
So as Robert Capon puts it in his typically colorful language, score a sad point, therefore, for the unhappy truth that the world is full of fools who wouldn't believe a good thing when they hear it. Free grace, dying love, and unqualified acceptance might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way we respond to it. All our protestations to the contrary, we will sooner accept a God we will be fed to than the one we will be fed by. There's a problem with going to this king's party. If you want to get dressed in Jesus, you have to get naked first. <laughs> you want to get dressed, you got to get naked. You got to take off your own success and sin. You've got to be clothed in the one who is righteous. And that's not easy. And that's not for everybody. The way my friend Ryan put it this week was, religion is for those who don't want to go to hell. The gospel is for those who've already been there. And I believe Bethesda is and can be a house of mercy for people who are going through hell or who have been through hell and have a story to share and a hand to help those who are next and can be a beacon of hope because I don't know that Bethesda, I mean, our council is incredible, but I don't think we're going to be able to solve the crisis in the Middle East. But when the people of God pray, when the people of God give, when the people of God sit around tables and call it a crew meeting and just dream about what God might be doing in our midst, we have a chance to be peacemakers in this place and at this time. And today's crew meetings move from what is God's mission for Bethesda, which was last week's focus of who are we and why are we here. This week it moves to a vision. What, what for you would be a compelling picture of Bethesda in one year, three years, five years? What would be a compelling picture? What does our community around us look like in three to five years? What does this church look like in three to five years? How do the gifts and the resources of this congregation meet the crying needs of our neighborhood? That's what we're going to talk about today. Our hope, according to Isaiah's prophecy and the king's party and the parable Jesus tells, our hope can't leave us in our own backyard. The God that we wait on is the God who wipes every tear from every eye. It's the God who throws a feast for all. It's a God who brings hope to the nations. So as we find ourselves at home in mercy here, we pray that that mercy would be extended both near and far. That we can feast at the Father's party that he throws for his son. That we come clothed in Christ and his goodness. And that we can rejoice in the Spirit's gifts among us. Let's pray. Gracious God, may we be a house of mercy in a merciless world, and may you give us new hearts of mercy because we ourselves have been merciless or have been caught up in our own fears. Free us by your Son, Jesus, to be active participants in this party you're throwing as we invite people to come home to your mercy. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.